0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. We are back with another installment of our podcast series with UBS Asset Management, House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios, including Dividend Ruler, QGARP, Opportunistic Equity Income, Mid-Cap, Large Cap Core, and the Tactical Themes Portfolio, All very popular offerings with our UBS client base. For today's conversation, glad to be back with Jeremy Zirin, the head of the private client U.S. equity team, as well as Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. So with that, Dom, let me pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Jeremy. Welcome back.
1: Great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having us on the show as always. Um, so there's been a lot of financial headlines over the last couple of days. So with that, I just wanted to jump right into it. Jeremy, at a higher level, can you run us through what happened with Silicon Valley? And perhaps more importantly, what are both the short term and long term implications in your view?
2: Great. Yeah, thanks, Don. It certainly has been a, a busy week in financial markets. So let's first start with, with what happened. With Silicon Valley, because it really is a, a remarkable story of a bank that you know, most people that didn't have a lot of familiarity with you know, seven days ago. But uh, the bank actually had a fairly solid long-term track record. You know, for starters, as the name suggests, Silicon Valley Bank focused on providing loans largely in Silicon Valley to venture cap and private equity companies, primarily in the tech and biotech industries. And it was, it was unique in the sense that the vast majority of its deposits, the 70, 97% in fact of its deposits were not FDIC insured, meaning that most of their depositors had accounts that had very large account balances that exceeded the 250,000 maximum deposit insurance that's covered uh, by standard, you know, FDIC insurance. And in fact, you know, the average account size at Silicon Valley Bank was over a million dollars. So it's 1.1 million dollars compared to, you know, the average account size at a place like J.P. Morgan or Bank of America or Wells Fargo, where the average account size is closer to just 20,000 dollars. And for SD for Silicon Valley, that, that's been the case for a long time. So uh, the key question is, what happened last week that set off a, a bank run with Silicon Valley depositors pulling their money out at such a rapid clip? And without getting too far into the weeds, you know, Silicon Valley was steadily seeing lower deposit balances because their client base, remember, you know, venture capital funds and and PE firms and their founders were were burning through their cash balances in part because rising interest rates had really slowed down venture capital and, and activity and funding. And on top of that, You know, Silicon Valley's investment portfolio had a high concentration in longer-duration bonds, which lost value as interest rates rose. So, in essence, you know, rising interest rates, you know, and the speed of the interest rate rise we've seen over the last 9 to 12 months hurt both sides of their balance sheet since it triggered deposit outflows and also drove losses on its investment portfolio. But but even still, it wasn't until management decided you know, to reposition its investment portfolio by selling you know twenty one billion dollars of its underwater securities and recognizing a nearly two billion dollars loss, uh, along with raising you know a plan to raise two billion dollars in in new capital and take those proceeds and invest in higher yielding bonds in order to improve its net income uh, net interest income going forward that we really saw issues start to, to, to hit in terms of the depositor outflow. Because instead of those transactions being viewed simply as they were meant to be uh, construed, as a restructuring of their securities portfolio, depositors saw it as a capital hole. Investors panicked, and stock price dropped 40% last Thursday. And then in response to the stock price falling, uh, as well as, you know, other uh, folks in the valley uh, raising alarms that depositors essentially panicked and reports say that they withdrew or at least tried to withdraw $42 billion of the bank's $170 billion deposit base over the next 24 hours. So basically we saw uh, an old-fashioned run on the bank. And before last Friday's trading day was over, ultimately, as most people know by now, the bank was in receivership, which basically means the FDIC was in control of their assets. And so that's what happened in a nutshell. What the implications are, are probably more interesting. You know, in the short term, there's no doubt that there's been a crisis of confidence in the banking system with investors essentially thinking that if a seemingly healthy bank with a solid track record of delivering shareholder value, like Silicon Valley, can fail in the matter of a trading day or two. Who else is vulnerable? And so this has led to a broad-based sell-off in bank shares with investors hyper-focused on identifying companies that could be vulnerable to the same fate as Silicon Valley. And so what we've seen over the past few days has really been uh, a pummeling with shares of small and mid-cap banks with either high exposure to California or to tech and venture capital clients more broadly, or with a high percentage of wealthy clients with high uninsured deposits. I would say more- On a more positive side, we've also seen a a rapid response from the government and policymakers that are attempting to backstop the system to prevent further bank runs by saying all uninsured deposits at the two failed banks so far would be made whole, and along with the implementation of new facilities that banks can access for added liquidity. uh, liquidity. So far, that hasn't necessarily been enough to, to quell investor fears, but it certainly does Allow for banks that run into uh, trouble to have access to liquidity, especially in their investment portfolio. Now, longer term, the implications are still fairly uncertain. But I I would posit that most of the fallout of the current banking turmoil will end up being a net negative for equity holders of banks. Why do I say that? Because You know, the recent shakeout will likely lead to greater regulatory scrutiny on smaller or regional banks. Ultimately, I would guess that most will be subject to higher capital requirements, more uh, frequent liquidity uh, stress tests, and ultimately higher compliance costs. So net-net, I mean, even with the decline that we've seen in uh, banks more broadly and specifically for companies that have large... You know, that have any characteristics that look like, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, I think that the environment here is likely to be still challenging in uh, the latter stages of the business cycle where, you know, banks often don't perform terribly well. But in addition, just the uncertainty and the likelihood that the direction of travel will be for, you know, greater regulation.
1: So Jeremy, you mentioned a loss of confidence by investors and all due to the contagion effects. How does Silicon Valley bank fit your, in fact, your economic outlook or market view?
2: Yeah, since last fall, when the Fed made it fairly clear that they'd be taking short-term interest rates, you know, above 4% and potentially well above 4%, I've been fairly cautious on the U.S. equity market. And clearly, uh, events like what we've seen over the past week only reinforce my view that we're late in the economic and market cycle, which is generally a time of elevated market volatility and weaker returns and just higher probability of, of, of drawdowns like we've been seeing over the past several days. I would say more specific to the current cycle, You know, there's, there's an old saying about hiking cycles that the Federal Reserve raises interest rates until something breaks. Right? Now, last year, the Fed hiked rates by 400 basis points, which is the fastest pace of tightening we've seen in the calendar year since the early 80s. And, and nothing really broke systemically. And the main damage done was really to, to growth stock valuations, which had benefited from ultra-low interest rates. But the economy generally continued to chug along, and I think more and more investors were buying into the notion that the Fed could orchestrate a soft landing, particularly with the uh, you know, data reflecting resiliency in the first few months uh, or a couple of months of this year. But my fears about the extent of the Fed's hiking cycle, I, I think, is starting to play out. That's the sharp rise in interest rates that we've seen – no, really was uh, in no small part the, the culprit of the bank stress that we're seeing today. And and maybe not directly, but depositors are more intensely now looking to money to from non-interest-bearing accounts to higher-yielding accounts. And that is the result of just how quickly and how high the Fed has raised rates. And ultimately, that's a negative for banks' profitability, because if you have you know, money moving from non-interest bearing accounts into higher yielding accounts that pressures, uh, net interest margins for the banks. And that likely is going to lead to just a slowing of, uh, of, of loan growth by banks and more risk averse behavior, uh, which is typical in the latter stages of the economic cycle. And so my biggest concern that I have going forward is that, you know, access to reasonably priced capital is going to be reduced as a result of both higher rates and the turmoil currently running through the banking system. And as banks focus more on shoring up their balance sheets and liquidity management, they naturally will engage in less risk taking, which means, you know, issuing fewer loans on the margin and ultimately means weaker economic growth. And so, you know, putting it all together and maybe, you know, said differently, uh, the odds of a, a hard landing, in my opinion, are, are going up.
1: Understood. So... I think we're all waiting for the Fed Reserve to meet again next week. Uh, there's a lot of noise about a potential Fed pause. However, what are your expectations?
2: Yeah, I've seen more and more analysis that the Fed is in this pickle, for lack of a better word, because inflation is still you know running hot, well above their, their 2% target. And so they need to raise rates to to quell inflation, but higher rates may soak more fear in the banking system, which suggests that they should slow down or, or pause interest rate increases. I think what's important to recognize is that the stress that we're seeing in the banking system right now is a forward-looking deflationary impulse, right? If more and more banks are concerned about showing up balance sheets, then as like I mentioned, you know, there's going to be less loan growth and that's going to lead to slower economic growth and put downward pressure on prices. Uh, the problem is the, the, the Fed has already been quite clear that they're data-dependent. And unfortunately, what I think that means is that, you know, the data is backward looking. So they're backward looking data dependent. And so the more backward looking data suggests that the Fed should continue to raise rates. Right? We've had very strong labor markets and CPI inflation uh, continues to be high. And uh, that would suggest the Fed should raise rates by at least 25 basis points next week and maybe even 50 basis points, uh, considering how much inflation still remains above the Fed's target. But, you know, I think that the Fed will be weighing their dual role of, you know, the the bank regulator with their roles of price stability and maximizing employment, and will be more prudent. So I think 50 is probably off the table for next week, and I think likely what we'll see is that they'll go 25 basis points next, you know, next week in March, uh, in their March meeting, and then they will, you know, be data dependent. But I think part of the data that they hopefully will include in their analysis is, you know, the stress in the banking system and, you know, is it going to restrict uh, capital or lending into the system that has much more of a disinflationary or deflationary impulse?
1: Thanks, Jeremy. I'm sure Paul will describe his status as being in a pickle, but, um, <laughs> um <laughs> but moving on,
2: tough time to be a policymaker
1: right now. Uh, I, I know would not want to be in his place, but, um, so for an active portfolio manager, market dislocations can create unique investment opportunities. So for you, and given your role as portfolio manager, is there any areas that you're currently focusing on or finding opportunities today?
2: Right, I think you have to look at this, uh, you know, in a couple of different lenses. So I, I think in the big picture is that we're in a type of environment that's late cycle, where recessionists are high, where you really want to focus on market segments with lower levels of economic sensitivity and where earnings expectations are most likely to be met. And so from that lens, I think that there's good value in healthcare stocks which have lagged the S&P 500 by 9 percentage points so far this year. It's the cheapest of the classic defensive sectors and we should see, you know, reasonably healthy pockets of, of earnings growth in segments like managed care and medical devices. Um, I still like the consumer staples sector here. I think that that looks appealing. Not only does the sector generally have inelastic demand during periods of rising prices, but you know sales for most segments of the sector hold up better than the average s and p 500 company in periods of slower economic growth. And if we do see you know commodity prices lower, that's uh, generally a, a positive for these companies because it boosts their profit margins. Uh, And I also like the fact that consumer staple stocks are consistent dividend growers, which typically is a characteristic that investors, you know, highly value during periods of of economic and market uh, volatility. I think the thrust of your question is probably a bit more on what happened this week and is, you know, regarding financials, are, are there, you know, areas that look more attractive here? And I would say even with the price declines that we've seen over the past week, I think it's a bit early to, you know, aggressively by the financial sector here and I'd rather be selective um, if the economy if the economy tips into recession uh, capital market activity is going to weaken credit losses will become a bigger issue for the earnings power of the banks and I think that would be a, a broad headwind for the sector I'd rather play the financials through the larger and you know well diversified property and casualty insurers and they're also been sold off not to the extent of the Regional banks or the money center banks, but they, they're down, you know, uh, several hundred basis points relative to the market over the past several trading days. And I think that's the proverbial, you know, baby with the bathwater that's been turned out. The area I would focus on if you wanted to try to buy, you know, weakness or at least recent weakness in the sector.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. And with that, I just wanted to remind the audience that the client uh, proof reports are posted on our website. But thank you again, Jeremy, for your insights. Uh, Dan, that's it
0: from us. Well, Dominique Shager and Jeremy Zirin, thank you again for spending some time with our listeners, our clients for another installment of House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios from UBS Asset Management. We look forward to next month's conversation. And for our listeners, be sure to tune in to House Call on a monthly basis. If you do have any follow-up questions based on what you've heard from the team today, please be sure to contact your UBS financial advisor. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.